Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we were in Acts. It was a real joy to have Rico here last week. Um, I love hearing, listening to Rico. But so far in Acts, the disciples, and by extension us, have been riding quite a powerful wave of potentially crushing problems being overcome by the presence of a sovereign God. The first such issue was the departure of Jesus himself. That is a big deal to have your Lord and your teacher and your master go away from you. Uh, He ascended to the position that he had earned through service to his father. So he's gone, but what could have been a tremendous loss instead became an enormous victory as the presence of God through the person of Jesus was replaced by the presence of God within many people through the person of the Holy Spirit. So it's a powerful solution to a potentially crippling problem. The Holy Spirit is. At the same time, The revelation of Judas as a traitor meant a replacement disciple needed to be found. Although there were still 11 disciples left, prophetic scripture had dictated that someone needed to take the betrayer's place, since the loss of Judas still represented a sizable gap in the intended group of 12. In the end, through the guidance of the Lord, Matthias was chosen as a fitting replacement, and the ministry of the apostles continued undeterred. Again, a powerful solution to a potentially crippling problem. Later, after performing a very public healing of a man crippled from birth, the apostles encounter their first real taste of persecution. The injustice of arresting two men for doing something good and God-honoring could have been a source of panic or discouragement for the followers. It could have led to the unraveling of their faithfulness and a rending of their fellowship. Instead, empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit, the arrested disciples are freed after giving this really compelling speech, the believers are united in prayer and their unity leads them to give up all their possessions to ensure the well-being of those less fortunate within their community. Another powerful solution to a potentially crippling problem. Which leads to the first instance of failure within this newly formed community of believers. Propelled equally by their greed and their lust for recognition and reputation, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit about the measure of their sacrificial giving. For this, the penalty was immediate, and it was harsh, it was death. The body of believers were not immune to corruption and dishonesty or idolatry, and an enormous example needed to be made of these impure followers. Where there was sin, there needed cleansing. It's sad but it was a powerful solution to a potentially crippling problem. And it's been like that throughout the early chapters of Acts. The believers come up against a problem, and the presence of God, first through Jesus and later through the Holy Spirit, guides them through it. But there is another similarity between each of these problems, another common presence. And the first common presence is the Lord himself. But there's another common presence. There's another similarity between each of these problems. See, it isn't just God solving the problems by himself. He uses his followers as well. And in Acts 1 to 5, it tends to be one person in particular involved in these problem-solving solutions. And who is that? I heard Andrew say it. Peter. Peter. It's always Peter right there in the mix. After the Holy Spirit descends on the believers, solving the problem of Jesus being gone, and solves that problem, But who's the one that is filled with the Spirit and delivers the first Kerygma sermon, drawing thousands into the fold? Who does that? Peter. 
It's Peter who rallies the disciples after Jesus' ascension and points to the scriptures that indicate the necessity of finding a new 12th disciple to solve the problem of Judas being a traitor. It's Peter who kickstarts that solution to that problem. It's Peter who performs that healing miracle on the crippled beggar. And it's Peter who is arrested along with John. And it's the spirit-filled Peter who addresses the Sanhedrin to get released. Peter is central to that whole story, the, the coming of persecution and the, prob- or the, the solution to that problem. He's right there in the mix of it. And finally, it's Peter who confronts Ananias and Sapphira about the problem of deceiving the church and the Holy Spirit. Peter and the Spirit, through Acts, throughout Acts 1-5, to together they lead. It's, it's a partnership. Which brings us to this morning. Today's little passage doesn't seem to have anything to do with Easter Sunday. I'll admit that right away. There is no mention of resurrection, of empty tombs, or even the name of Jesus himself. So it seems a strange passage. I was hoping this passage would line up with Easter. I really was. So when Rico volunteered to preach, I was like, yes, now it works. Because otherwise I was going to have to skip around. Sorry, that's just me being a, a nerdy pastor just trying to make it work. But this doesn't seem like an Easter Sunday passage at all. But it is. In these six verses, we find another powerful solution to another potentially crippling problem that we feel even today amongst us. And that's a problem that threatens to strangle out healthy growth within a church. It's a problem that turns capable and willing followers into hollowed out, lifeless shells. It's a problem that leads entire flocks of sheep away from their good shepherd. And this problem, which requires yet another powerful solution from our gracious Father, is the problem of purpose. It is easier than ever for the church to lose sight of her purpose and to be led astray by enticing voices and selfish ambitions. But the same God who called Peter and filled him with his spirit is the same God who calls each of us and fills us with his spirit. The same God who delivered his early church through terrible trials is here to, to deliver us through our problems as well. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead is still in the business of overcoming death with life in our world today amongst us. So let's read Acts 5, verses 11 to 16, and be reminded together of our shared purpose as people living in the victory of Easter Sunday. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Obviously, this comes out of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. And yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. As a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. That's our passage for today. It doesn't sound very Eastery. I'll get to that. But this passage is a bridge passage, sandwiched between two stories of those aforementioned problems and acts. The problem of dishonest followers, Ananias and Sapphira, the story comes out of that. And it leads to the problem of intense persecution from those in positions of authority. In this case, the Jewish Sanhedrin Council. Right in between those stories of big problems that need to be solved by the presence of the Lord comes this little story. This little reminder that despite setbacks, 
Despite suffering, God's kingdom continues to advance. Even in the midst of all these problems, God is moving forward with his people. I began the reading in verse 11, which was the last verse of our last story in Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. It deals with the immediate effects of the ordeal with those dishonest disciples. And the immediate effect was that great fear gripped the whole church. Now this makes sense because I'm sure everyone in the church is recognizing themselves as just filled with just as much potential for sinfulness and selfishness and greed and a lust for reputation as they had. I'm sure they see what happened to Ananias and Sapphira and think, well, there but for the grace of God go I. Like that could be me at any moment. So you can imagine, you can imagine how everyone in the church would be gripped with fear. They, they could see it happening to themselves. And for God, that is the desired effect. He accomplished what he meant to do in punishing Ananias and Sapphira so severely. It led to a purification of the church. People were considering the ramifications of their sinfulness freshly. But there's something very easy to miss in verse 11. And it's the specific reason why I wanted to read it. It's one little word that's very important. This verse, verse 11, contains the very first time in Acts, and actually in the whole New Testament, where the church is called the church. This is the first time that they are called the church, here in verse 11. And it doesn't come in the context of a great victory or in the context of a mighty miracle. It comes in the context of failure and fear. I'm not sure what that means, but it sure it means something. When they are most broken and most at a potential to scatter is when they are called the church. And then Luke goes on to highlight the effects of that terrible act. And they're positive, right? They're, it's, it's a good thing that happens. The Greek word rendered church is the word ecclesia. There it is in the Greek, ecclesia. The word ecclesia simply means assembled people of some common association, usually the same citizenship. So the people of Athens would be, those citizens would gather together and be ecclesia, if that makes sense. It doesn't necessarily have religious connotations. For example, our fundraiser last week was Ecclesia. The people of Clyde gathered together for a common purpose. That had, well, it did have to do with church because we the church were putting it on. But the people who came were not necessarily church people, but they were still Ecclesia. However, as with so many other rich Greek words in the New Testament, once it becomes associated with Jesus, it takes on a life of its own. It takes on a definitive meaning in Scripture. The word Ecclesia is used 22 more times to describe the group of believers in Acts. But it is not only a New Testament word. Remember when I taught you about the Septuagint two weeks ago? Anybody remember that word, Septuagint? The Septuagint was the Jewish translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. Because in Jesus' time, Hebrew was a second language to to even people in, in and around Jerusalem. The main language of the people of the, of the time was Greek. And so they translated the, their scripture, which we call the Old Testament, the entirety of their scripture into Greek. So it could be understood in the common language of the people. To make sense, that's exactly what we did in the 1500s with um, the Bible. We translated it from Latin into English. It's just something important and good to do. And this Jewish 
translation from Hebrew into Greek was an enormously influential document for the writing of the New Testament. Keep in mind that when the people, when Luke and Paul and Matthew and Mark and John, when, when our writers wrote their letters, they didn't write them thinking, hey, one day this will be the Bible. I'm adding on to our scriptures. They didn't write it assuming they would become canonized. They just wrote these letters because they were important for the church. It wasn't until after, a hundred and some years after, that they were collected and it was decided this is the canon. This is what we, we will call sacred scripture. And so when they wrote, they relied heavily on this Septuagint, the wording, the phrasing, the language, the theology. It's what they believed and it came out in their writings. Well, the thing is that the word ecclesia is used throughout this Septuagint to describe the assembly of God's people, Israel. Whenever Israel gathered together, they were called in the Septuagint, Ecclesia. For Luke and for the early church itself, their primary, primary designation of themselves as Ecclesia was not unique to them. It was a title passed on to them and shared with the original people of God, the Hebrew people, the Israelites. They were Ecclesia first. And so in that way, church is a bit misleading as a translation of Ecclesia because we lose the sense of connectedness to the Old Testament. It is not just a New Testament word. It is an Old Testament word as well. We don't think of Israel as a church, do we? No, I don't. And yet it too is Ecclesia. Some early English translators, instead instead of calling it the church here in verse 11, they called it the congregation or the assembly since those were the words they used in Old Testament translations as well. If, it's, if Ecclesia becomes congregation or assembly in the Old Testament, it made sense for it to continue through to the New Testament. It, it bonds the two together appropriately so. And so now you may be wondering what any of this has to do with Acts 5. Why is he rambling on about translations again? Doesn't he know I have 10 pounds of chocolate Easter bunny to get to before supper time? Well, I apologize to both you and your confectionery rodents. I know you have chocolate to eat. We'll get there. Be patient. I'm trying to make a small point that connects to the larger point about the problem of purpose. The use of the word ecclesia connects the early followers of Jesus directly to the ancient followers of Yahweh. Luke does this on purpose. It constitutes a passing of the torch, just as the arrival of the Holy Spirit in flames and wind and earthquake connects that moment to the giving of the law and Mount Sinai, where Israel was galvanized into a nation. That moment connects to this moment, and scripture is full of this. Today is a great example. Easter Sunday is directly connected to what, Darcy? Passover, that's right. Directly connected. It's just another reminder that our purpose as the body of Christ is the same as Israel's purpose as the holy nation of God's people. At its core, at its fundamental core, we share the same purpose as Israel does. We are just as responsible to listen and to follow and to obey our Lord as Israel was, right? I mean, our Lord may have changed a bit. It's now Jesus instead of Yahweh, but Jesus is Yahweh, so it's still the same. I know it's confusing. I don't understand it either. We too, like Israel, are firstborn children in the Father's family. We too are called out of slavery to sin in order to be slaves with a higher holy purpose. We too are a nation of priests. 
We too represent the temple of the holy God, except it's not a building, now it's us. We too carry on the purpose for which Israel was given its name. What does the name Israel mean? Fight with God? Yeah, wrestles with God, struggles with God. Yeah, exactly. That's what the name Israel literally means, wrestles with God. And that's our purpose as well. If we are Ecclesia, then we are related to Israel. Of course, this needs to be said strongly, Jesus changes everything. We are no longer Israel. We are not Hebrews. We are merely born in the tradition of the Hebrews, much like Jesus himself. And I'm not saying that we can't use the word church anymore because it's a bad translation. It is not. That would be preposterous. Church is still a great word for what we are. I'm not saying do away with it. I just want us to see a little deeper into what that word church actually means. It contains depths of meaning that reach back to our brothers David and Isaiah and Moses and Abraham. When we use the word church, ecclesia, we are saying we are part of a tradition that that expands all the way back to, you could say, creation. I think that that is beautiful. I don't want to diminish our connection to the Old Testament even though we are children of the New Testament. So before we even get into the details of the church's successes in Acts 5, 12 to 16, we are first given a reminder of our origin story. The first principle of our purpose is this. We are descendants of an ancient lineage. It benefits us to know the story of Israel in the Old Testament since we share her story to a large degree. All the stumblings and fumblings and failures of Israel that you read, we can read ourselves into that as well. But what about the specifics? It is true that the teachings and character of Jesus differentiate us from Israel, even if we're related to Israel. So what are the purposes of this new transplanted branch growing as a tender sapling out of the stump of Israel? What are those who live in the light of the resurrection to be focused on? Well, let's reread 12 to 16. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. As a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. You might think that my answer to the question of the church's purpose is to perform mighty acts. That's what we see here. Is our purpose to perform mighty acts? Well, not really. Certainly, I have no intention of limiting the abilities of the one who we celebrate today as conquering the grave and rising from death into life. If he can do that, he can do literally anything through you. He can, and maybe he will. So it's not that I don't think he can or will perform healing miracles in our postmodern, I got to see it and feel it to believe it kind of a world. I'm not saying he can't and doesn't do that. He certainly can. It's just that, well, nobody is exactly clamoring to get through the door so that my shadow can fall on them, right? Nobody's doing that, or your shadow for that matter. Um, I've never experienced anything like that. Or maybe you have, maybe you've been to a healing ceremony. I haven't. And in fact, knowing myself and my tendency to suffer from that medical condition in which every little scrap of praise causes my head to swell alarmingly large, you know, that medical condition, 
Maybe you have it too. I certainly have it. Knowing that I have that condition, it's probably healthier for me to not have a thriving healing business. Because I know that my trap would be, look how great I'm doing. Look at all the good I'm doing. Look what a powerful person I am. I'm sure that the pride would consume me. God knows what he's doing and not making my shadow heal people and cast demons out. So then, if the purpose for us as Ecclesia isn't necessarily powerful acts of miraculous goodness, then what is it? Well, I think we need to expand the actions and at the same time narrow the focus. I believe that the purpose of the church, as summarized beautifully in Acts 5, 12 to 16, is to live, speak, and behave as Jesus did. We are to be the presence of Jesus. And now you're thinking, some profound statement that is, Lance. Followers of Jesus are supposed to, wait for it, follow Jesus. Brilliant! Why didn't I think of that? I know. I know it sounds really simplistic. I know it sounds very obvious. But don't let the simplicity and the obviousness rob you of the power of this purpose. It's so easy for us to be distracted from this purpose or to confuse what the world says is important or good or right with what Jesus declares is important or good or right. It's painfully obvious what our purpose is as followers of Jesus. That is obvious. We are to follow Jesus. But it's just as painfully obvious that there are too few people in our church at large who are willing to be faithful to that calling. Yes, it's obvious. We as followers follow Jesus. But if it's so obvious, why do so few remain faithful to that calling? If it's that simple, why is it so hard to do? Today is Easter Sunday. And on Easter Sunday, we celebrate these simple but beautifully life-altering truths. First of all, that Jesus Christ was a real human and that he was the real Son of God. Right? Is that the first thing that we can be unified under? Yes. Secondly, that this God-man named Jesus was willing to die a shameful, barbaric death in order to take our deserved punishment for all of our brokenness and faithlessness and sinfulness. That this God-man Jesus died for us. Is that the second thing we can affirm today? Yes, good. So he really lived, he was real, and he really died. It was an actual death. And thirdly, that this God-man named Jesus came back to life despite being really dead, and in doing so, made it possible for those who believe in him to likewise conquer sin and shame and death, and to become a new creation filled with eternal life. Right? Can we affirm those three things? He really lived, he really died, he really rose again. And that has real ramifications for us. Because that's not all. It doesn't just end with a rolled away stone at a tomb. It doesn't end there. That's not all that Easter Sunday means. The story doesn't end there. He demands something in return for all these free gifts of grace and forgiveness of redemption. He requires your life, your very life. Every breath, every movement, every word, he wants it all. Why? First of all, because he's worth it, deserves it. And second of all, because there's work to be done. There is a mission and a kingdom. In other words, for all of those who believe he died and rose again and then rose to glory, there is purpose to our life. There is a reason we are here. And he is doing something in us and through us to accomplish that mission. Our purpose is not to simulate Jesus or to merely describe what he's like. Our purpose is higher than that. Our purpose is to be 
Jesus. Not just be like him, to become him in a very real way. Nothing less. And that ups the ante of this a little bit, doesn't it? To follow him is to be him, become him, to consume him. And so what exactly does it mean to be Jesus? That's kind of vague. And that's where Acts 5 is illuminating to us. To be the presence of Jesus is to be filled with his spirit, as we've seen throughout Acts. The first thing is that we are filled with his spirit. Then, once we are filled with his spirit, we be Jesus by being together. I am not Jesus by myself. I only look anything like Jesus when I'm surrounded by other people who also look like Jesus. Paul talks about the church as a body. Well, a body looks incomplete without an arm. And it, without a head, certainly looks incomplete. Jesus is our head. Without him, it all falls apart. But my body is incomplete without my liver, without my nose, without my pinky toe. All of it comes together to be the body. And it's hard for me to be Jesus as just one part of the body without the rest of the body, without you challenging me and encouraging me and growing with me. We are Jesus in the flesh. We are Christ incarnate together. And that can't happen when we are squabbling and arguing and tearing each other apart. Verse 12 says, they all met together. That's what it says here in Acts 5. They all met together. And that meeting together is the start of our purpose. We affirm the sacred truth of needing one another. I went through, I mean, there's a huge movement in our world today, especially among young people, and I know I went through it just as they do, where we don't need church. Like, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And while that may technically be true, It's also incredibly hard to the point of impossibility to be a Christian without the presence of fellow believers. I think the wiser I get, and hopefully that's what's happening. I I hope that, I think that's what's happening. The wiser I get, the more I realize that flying solo is a fool's mission. That yeah, no, famously, you've probably seen it on Facebook if you're on Facebook, being Sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. Yes, that's true. That is technically true. But how does a car get the service it needs unless it goes to a garage? We need to be where we need to be to grow. We need each other. So that is part of our purpose, growing together in unity to keep the body of Christ healthy. Third, If we are to be Jesus, we are to spread out from ourselves. And we do this with honesty and purity. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? The warning still applies. We still require faithful integrity. But with that integrity, we bring life where there is death. We bring light where there is darkness. We bring healing where there is hurting. We bring power where there is powerlessness. Isn't that beautiful? That that is our, our, once we have him in us, and once we become him together, that our mission is to go out and welcome more to the body, make our body bigger, bringing life where there is death. That is the whole theme of Easter. Why? Is it for our own sake? Heck no. Were we crucified unjustly for the sin of all humankind? No. Have we defeated death and conquered the grave? Uh, no. Is it by the name of Chris Lance 
or Clyde Christian Bible Church that every knee will bow in fear and worship? Did we ascend to the right hand of God to rule all of creation? Did you do that? I didn't do that. Forget it. So why would we do anything for our sake? It doesn't make sense. If, if what we know to be true is true, why would we do anything for our glory, for our sake? Shouldn't our purpose be to bring glory for the one we confess as Lord? Of course. And so the light we bring isn't ours. It's just ours to share. And any miraculous thing we do, whatever, you know what? You do miracles every day. I don't know if you know this, but you do. You do miraculous things every day. Things that are impossible according to human nature. Things like forgiving an enemy. Or selling an extra vehicle you have to pay for a kid to go to Bible college. Or coming home tired from work and baking cookies for your neighbor with cancer. Or volunteering for an evening of bringing dignity and warm clothes to drug-addicted prostitutes. Or finally getting the courage to confess to a friend that you're struggling with something harmful. Or biting the bullet and asking your coworker if they'd like to join you in church on Sunday. I mean, each one of these things is a miracle when you do them, if you do them. A miracle that requires the presence of the resurrected Christ within us. Just as Peter required the presence of the resurrected Christ in him when the sick and the demon-possessed were coming in flocks to bask in his shadow and be healed. There's nothing remarkable about Peter. Do you remember him in the Gospels when we studied Luke for two years? Do you remember the portrait of Peter we got from Luke? He's a, he's a, a bumbling, stumbling, fumbling... He, he shouts out inappropriate things at inappropriate times. He never seems to understand. And eventually he just abandons Jesus at his moment of greatest need. So there's nothing remarkable about Peter. He's just a fisherman. A passionate, hot-headed, stubborn fisherman. So there's nothing remarkable about Peter except one thing. That Peter understood his purpose. That's the only remarkable thing about Peter is he knew his Lord and he knew his purpose. His purpose was challenging, but after Jesus reclaimed him, feed my sheep three times at the end of John, after Jesus reclaimed him, Peter didn't waver once from the challenge of his purpose. Not when Jesus left him, ascended to heaven, Peter didn't waver. Not when a replacement for Judas was needed, Peter didn't waver. Not when he was imprisoned, simply for showing compassion to a broken man. Peter didn't waver. Must have been discouraging, but he didn't waver. And not when greedy dishonesty threatened to seep into his father's house through Ananias and Sapphira. Peter didn't waver. Peter knew his purpose to continue seeking his Lord's will, to continue serving his Lord's kingdom, to continue loving the endless people whom the Lord placed before him, sometimes loving them by teaching them, sometimes loving them by healing them, sometimes loving them by confronting them. And does that not sound like a little mission statement that we created together? Peter's purpose. See, I better read it for the podcast. Seeking the kingdom with others, serving the king with others. But even Peter could not do any of this alone. Peter needed his brothers and sisters beside him, and he needed the presence of his Lord within him. I'll say that again because it's important. Peter could not do what he did alone. He needed his brothers and sisters beside him, and he needed the presence of his Lord within him. That is the nature of our purpose as individuals and as the body, as as a church, as ecclesia. 
That's the nature of our purpose, to know and proclaim and even become our resurrected Jesus here on earth. It's a partnership. In fact, it's very much like a marriage relationship. Among the very last words of the entire Bible are these, from Revelation 22. These are some of the last words of the Bible, and it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears this say, Come. Let anyone who is thirsty, Come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Who does the inviting here? Who is it that says come? The spirit and the bride. And do you know who the bride is? The bride of Jesus? Who's the bride? The church. We are ecclesia. The church is the bride. You and I. We are the bride. And with the spirit, we go to those who are thirsty and we offer them living water. We invite them to come. That's exactly what we see in Acts 5. The spirit and the bride partnering together and inviting the thirsty to come. That is our purpose. That's what was happening in Jerusalem in Acts 5. That's what is happening in Clyde in 2017. Right now, you're doing this. And that is what will happen when those who have followed Jesus faithfully reach their reward and shed sin and death once for all by the grace of our resurrected Lord. That's what Revelation 22 is saying. That's what it's all about, partnering with the presence of God and offering healing to the hurting, water to the thirsty, and on Easter, life to the dead. If we continue to be faithful in this, Clyde Christian Bible Church, if we hold true to our purpose of being the presence of Jesus, then the words of Acts 5.14 will ring true for us as well. What does 5.14 say? It says, More and more believed in the Lord and were added to their number, multitudes of both men and women. If we are faithful to our purpose, we'll experience a similar thing as well. And so he is risen indeed, as we said to start the service. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He raises us up with him to accomplish his good purpose. And I know that we can fulfill that purpose because he lives. Even today, he lives. He lives in us. And so with that, we are going to sing Because He Lives, because I think it's a really fitting conclusion to everything that I've been saying here. It features lines about, I know that life is worth living because he lives. That the amazing and good things that he does through us are possible because he lives. And that's our purpose, to partner with the Spirit, to bring life where there is death to bring water where there is thirst. Why don't we pray together? Jesus, thank you for giving us life and thank you that you fill us with life in order to, to, to make you known and to make you glorified here in Clyde and wherever we go. I pray that we would be people who bring uh, water to the thirsty, bring life to those who are spiritually dead, bring hope to the hopeless and power to the powerless, just as we see in Acts 5. But Jesus, we cannot do that without you. We acknowledge that you are the source of all that, and we ask for the grace of your presence in us to accomplish our purpose here in Clyde. We pray in your powerful name, because you live. Amen.